If you'd like to get your Bibles out and start reading, it's on page 818 in the Bible. Today we're listening, you're here, going to hear the words from Matthew 13, 10 to 23. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, you, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the, the, the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been the kingdom of heaven, but has... Ooh, sorry. Troubles. Who has more will be given, to them has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for them, the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. And best lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say unto you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. As for what has sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what he was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but he cares, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what has been sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Here ended the word. Morning, everybody. Uh, just before I pray, uh, Lee just mentioned to me that uh, the welcome team will have a table outside, just outside, uh, where you can take your service sheet after the, after the service. So please take your service sheet if you filled it out uh, outside to them and they will collect it for you. And also you may have questions about different areas of service. And I'm putting this on Lee right now publicly. He would gladly answer any questions you have and help you find the right niche. Uh, I can say that because I know him. 
and there's a, there's a whole team of people uh, in the, of the same ilk, and they'll be waiting for you outside uh, to help you through some service opportunity decisions. Please, will you pray with me, and then we'll have a look at our passage. Father God, you are amazing, and uh, we do need to know you, we need to enjoy you, we need to desire you above all else, we need to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and uh, we want to, but there's that part of us that resists, there's that part of us that um, is hostile. Uh, Lord, we desperately need you. And uh, we need you to overcome that part of us. We, we need your spirit working within us. We need uh, to see the Lord Jesus with new eyes again this morning. Please will you give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear. Please will you soften our hearts, cut our hearts again, uh, that we might return to you through your Son and in the power of your Spirit. Amen. In this church we are of the strong, biblical, tested conviction that true change, lasting change, change that endures and is sustainable, only happens when the Word of God is shared in the power of God's Spirit. That's our philosophy of ministry. It won't, it'll be familiar to, to many of you. That's how disciples of Jesus are made, when the Word of God is shared in the power of His Spirit. So then what you need to do is you need to arrive here at 10.15, uh, dispense with everything else, get here at 10.15 for the Sunday morning sermon, and hocus pocus, you're a disciple. It's the just add a Bible sermon approach to disciple making. 35 minutes a week, wait for it to set, and voila, out comes a disciple of Jesus. Well, our passage this morning is going to show us, remind us, that it's not quite that simple. In verse 18, Jesus calls this the parable of the sower. He doesn't call it the parable of the soils or the parable of the seed. It's the parable of the sower. It's ultimately about the sower, about the king of the kingdom. It's about Jesus himself and how we relate to him. It's also clear from the parable that we can't really separate how we relate to Jesus from how we relate to his word. The big idea in this parable is that in this age, the age in which we live, his word will produce a range of responses. We can expect that. In this age, the word of the king of God's kingdom will produce a range of responses. We can be sure of that. It will confirm some in their sinful, wasted life, and others it will free to the life of discipleship, to the life of abundance, to the good life, the full life. That's actually the nature of any parable. It both reveals and conceals at the same time, depending on who's listening. Our parable, it's no secret, uses farming as a frame of reference. Jesus makes it clear in verse 19 that the seed is, and you have a look there, the seed is the word of the kingdom. It's the word of King Jesus. The king who lives and dies for his rebellious subjects in order to offer them the free gift on, of citizenship in his kingdom. And of course it's a word of grace. Because instead of a rebel's death, which we deserve, he offers the full rights of citizenship. He gives us the key to the city, if you like. 
which we could never, ever deserve. That's the seed, the word of God. The sower sows the seed, and you have two types of sowing. You have fruitless sowing, and you have fruitful sowing. Of course, the difference between them has nothing to do with either the sower or the seed. Uh, Those are constants. We know that from ordinary farming. The difference has to do with where the seed lands. Jesus identifies a number of landings that actually threaten the harvest. Each of them describes a situation which results in a fruitless word. I mean, that's worth noticing in itself. The word can be utterly fruitless in your life. Fruitless. You can turn up here every Sunday for 50 years and nothing. Still remain completely barren. No fruit, no change. How could that possibly ever happen? Well, Jesus gives us three descriptions of fruitlessness, three risks to the harvest, if you like. The path and the birds, the rocks, the root, and the sun, and then the thorns. So first, the, verse 19, the path and the birds. I'll reread it for us. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. What's the threat here? It's the birds. It's the evil one, Satan, the devil. He comes and he snatches away the word. So my friends, we, as disciples, we can't be naive. We can't be naive. There is a personal, active, powerful, deadly force intensely opposed to any fruit in your life. We need to know that. And that means the one thing we can't be as disciples is casual. This is war. The stakes can't get any higher. And you have an enemy determined that you remain fruitless. So don't approach Bible reading or teaching or preaching or praying casually. Come attentively. Come carefully. Come urgently. Come with fear and trembling. But don't come casually. Don't come as if you're not in a fight for your life, because you are. That's the word of this parable. So the threat, the risk, is the devil, right? That's not quite the full story. The birds can only snatch the seed because it's on the path. So in those days, the fields, the the agricultural fields, they weren't fenced off. Uh, There was public access. You could walk right through them. So there were tracks and thoroughfares going through the through the field, and obviously out of respect to the farmer, you stay on the, on the established track. The soil on those tracks, this is just common sense for us, would have been compact, and it would have been bare. So if the seed falls there, it's, of course, utterly exposed to the birds. But have a look down at the end of verse 19. So we're in Matthew 13. Have a look at the end of verse 19. The seed sown on the path is sown in his heart. It's sown in his heart. So it's not as if this person had just been flicking through DSTV, landed by some accident on God TV, and heard Jesus died for your sins before he quickly managed to scramble back to supersport. Didn't happen like that. No, this seed 
was sown right into his heart. At the very least, that means that he took it into his consciousness, held it there. But even there, it was exposed, and so it was snatched away. It was sown into his heart, but he never actually accepted it, never received it personally, never received Jesus as king for himself. Kind of what Nick was describing to us this morning. In the words of verse 19 and verse 23, he never heard and understood. Because if he had truly heard and understood, he wouldn't have held this word at some sort of cognitive arm's length. You know, some sort of abstract idea over here. Intellectually interesting, but not really for me. To truly hear is to hear for yourself. And to obey. Now I think we've all at some point or another had seeds snatched away from us. We've all heard, but not really heard. So you might hear the preacher preach on some aspect of sin and you think to yourself, that is so true. They really need to hear that. Or you read a passage that moves you to be radically generous with your possessions and you think, amen. That's dead right. We should all be giving away more than 10%. And as soon as I get that promotion, someone is describing a real situation of need and every passage of Scripture on practical love is rising up, welling up within you, welling up within your heart and your mind, and you think, you know, I could really help this person. Let me just run it past the wife. Of course, by the time you get home on a Sunday, all you can think about is Sunday lunch. That's the end of it. That word will never bear any fruit in your life. It has been snatched away. The path and the birds. Then there's the rocks, the root, and the sun. Verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This seed fares a little bit better. A person work, walking through the field uh, would see some green shoots and would be sure to stay, stay off them. Wouldn't want to crush those seedlings. Someone hears the word. There's joy. There's emotion. There's energy. But there's also a threat. There's a very real risk. What is it? Verse 21 describes it as tribulation or persecution. Now, two things to notice about tribulation or persecution. First, they are a certainty. It's not if, it's when. Verse 21, when tribulation or persecution arises. When. Back in verse 6, when Jesus was originally telling the parable to the crowds, he says, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. Suffering in the Christian life is as sure as the sun rising. It's as sure as the sun rising. Christians have no general exemption from suffering whatsoever, none. Anyone who tells you otherwise is either lying or tragically misinformed. As one disciple of Jesus put it, there is no easy way for the servant of God. There is no easy way. For the servant of God. 
Disciples will suffer. Second thing to notice is that there's a special brand of suffering reserved just for Christians called persecution because of the word. The disciple of Jesus will suffer sometimes just for being a disciple of Jesus. And I think we're going to see more and more of this as Western culture, which of course is so influential on us here, as Western culture grows increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And it is. Make no mistake, it is. I recently met a a Christian policeman from the UK. He was telling me about how so much of his work is is, uh, responding to domestic disturbance issues, to domestic violence. He described himself as a kind of a social worker with a nightstick. So many of the people he speaks to are deeply distressed. They are desperate. Now, you and I can imagine how they would be comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, how they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told me that if he even mentions the name of Jesus, just mentions it, and is then reported, he will lose his job. No question about it. Here in South Africa in the past month, yet another wedding venue was uh, tried in the media for declining to marry a same-sex couple on the grounds of religious conviction. And the scary part of the article, the scariest part of the article I read was, was right in the closing paragraph, uh, the reporter suggested that the Human Rights Commission will convict them, will find them guilty, and they will have to pay compensation or, and listen to this, be rehabilitated rehabilitated. I mean, that's the language of thought-pleasing, brainwashing. That says to us, if you don't hold to a certain set of beliefs, then your mind must be sanitized by the state. I mean, that is very, very scary language. It's scary, but it shouldn't come as any surprise. We're going to see more and more of this, because the disciple of Jesus can expect to face opposition. So suffering is a threat to the harvest. Again, that's not quite the full story. Suffering is a threat to the harvest, no more than the sun is a threat to a growing plant. So just think about it with me. It's like the heat of a summer's day is in some senses necessary and expected in plant growth. So suffering is in some senses necessary and expected in Christian growth. The real question is, are your roots deep enough? Are your roots deep enough? If you are not deeply rooted in Christ, then when the heat comes, you will wither. The joy will disappear as fast as it sprung up. On the other hand, if you are deeply rooted in Christ, when the heat comes, you will grow. Same heat, entirely different outcome. Once again, this parable won't allow us to blame our fruitlessness on external factors. We can't blame it on the birds or the sun. We can't blame it on the devil or suffering, persecution. Jesus won't let us escape our personal responsibility for how we receive the word. In fact, just look at it with me. Every Every time a threat is mentioned in this parable, it's personified. So verse 20, 
as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who. You see, the threat is is, um, portrayed as a person. There's personal responsibility. Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who. This is the person. This is the person whose root is too shallow to survive suffering. The suffering that will come. We are responsible for our reaction to the word. So you ask, if I'm responsible, how do I deepen my root in Christ? It's a great question. Every time you respond to the word with trust and obedience, your root grows just a little deeper. Every time you respond with trust and obedience, that root of yours grows just a little deeper into Christ. So you want to exercise trust in the little things. And then when the heat comes and you call to exercise trust in something big, you are ready. Your roots are deep enough to sustain you. The path and the birds, the rocks, the root and the sun. Third threat, third threat to the harvest, the thorns. Here we don't have a seed that is snatched away before it germinates or a green shoot that withers as soon as the heat arrives because it has no root. Here we have a good, strong plant. It's a good, strong, healthy plant, but it's slowly being choked out by thorny weeds. The competition for water and light means that this good plant is slowly losing its health and eventually it's going to die before it's had a chance to produce any fruit. Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What is it that is competing for the place of God's word in your life? What is competing for the place of God's word in your life? Jesus highlights the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. What are the cares of this world? What are the, what are the things of this world that cause us great anxiety? When you're lying awake at night, what is it that fills your mind? What is it that's tormenting you? When you're confronted with a service opportunity, we had Kate up here earlier, you're confronted with a service opportunity at church, you, you think to yourself, you know, I, I can do that. In fact, there's a part of me that really wants to do that. But I'm just too busy. Too busy with what exactly? Well, it's no secret. The great likelihood is that you are busy with advancing your education or your career. I mean, that's what the world says we must do at all costs to the exclusion of just about everything else. That is the important thing in life. Everything else is a hobby, including church. The world's view on this often comes to us through our extended family, doesn't it? What do you mean more time for church? I mean, get real. We paid for that expensive education. It's time for payback. Career, education, maybe a different stage in your life. Maybe you are busy with kids. We spoke about this last week. The world says she must have every opportunity I had in life or She must have every opportunity I didn't have in life. That's the most important thing for my daughter. 
Well, is it? We are responsible parents. We have to answer the question. Is it? Is the most important thing her happiness or is it her holiness? And by holiness, I don't just mean moral purity. I mean set apart for God. I mean disciple of Jesus. What's more important? Incidentally, if you are a disciple of Jesus, that's where true happiness is to be found. But that's not in the fine print. We need to decide. As parents, we need to decide. Is this family going to orbit around this child and her opportunities in life? Or is it going to orbit around the Lord Jesus Christ? We have to decide. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. These two plants are competing for light and air. And only one of them is going to survive. Career kids, they make us anxious. What about the state of our country? The state of the globe? That'll give you sleepless nights, won't it? You don't know this, but I've actually got stress monitors hooked up to all of you right now. I've got a screen right here. I have to get a spike. That's my goal for the morning. I want to get a spike. There are three words I know I can bank on to get my spike. You ready? ESCOM. It's off the charts. Trump. There's a spike. It's not quite the previous spike. There's a spike. Coronavirus. I mean, there are others, aren't there? Climate change, land reform, Zimbabwe. We can be so consumed by these worldly cares and so consumed by giving ourselves to these worldly causes, as good as many of them are, and I'm not saying they're not important, but we can be so consumed by that that we have no emotional or physical energy left for God's word. Thorns come as the cares of this world. They also come as the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus is saying, wealth makes promises to us. But those promises are a lie. They're a lie. What are the promises? We don't have to think too long. Happiness, security, purpose. Money says, get just a little more of me and you'll be happy. You'll feel safe. You'll feel like you've achieved something, like you're worth something. Our, our passage says that's deceitful. That is a lie. It's a lie. There's another part of the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you because it says it so plainly. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. You're never going to have enough. That's what the Bible is saying. So the question is, who do we trust? Do we trust money and its promises or God's word and his promises? The fascinating thing, in fact, the slightly ironic thing, is that the testimony of so many rich people sides with the Bible, sides with God's word and his promises. You never have enough, they tell us. 
And that which you have doesn't in the end make you happy or keep you safe. Uh, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, is worth hundreds of millions of US dollars. He still gets up at 3.45 every morning to make a few more. Elon Musk, at last count, worth net worth somewhere in the region of 23 billion US dollars. He's still working 120 hours a week. That's 17 hours a day to make a few more. I mean, it's never enough. It never satisfies. Ernest Hemingway, right at the height of his fame and fortune, put it like this. So he's wealthy. He's ambitious. He's achieved most of his ambitions. And this is where he arrives. Life is just a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. He committed suicide. And it's not like it's an isolated story. There's so many stories like that. But we are hell-bent on ignoring them. We are hell-bent on ignoring the witness of those who've gone further down this road than we ever will. They have a testimony. They're telling us it's empty. It's a mirage. We're not going to listen to them. We know better. And we're hell-bent on ignoring the witness of the Bible. We know better than Jesus himself. We are going to get it right. We're going to serve both God and money. The witness of this parable is that it's one or the other. It's one or the other. And unless you pull it out at its roots, the love of money will choke the word of God in your life. Make no mistake about it. Choking is a slow death. It's the smallest decisions that tighten that noose around your neck. The tiniest little compromises. Just this Sunday, we'll be back next week. The problem is that if you compromise this time, next time it's going to be a whole lot easier. The word of God doesn't end up on the outskirts of our lives by some big dramatic decree or decision. It gets nudged bumped, politely asked just to move aside a little, just for a moment. It doesn't happen by decree. It happens by degree. And soon enough, it's out there on the fringe where there's no chance of any fruit. And soon after that, it's out of your life completely. You know, Katie was up here earlier. She tells a story of a, of a really high-powered senior executive in corporate South Africa who wanted to pull out of their life group because he was just too busy. It was just too much. He was just too busy. Kate said in her uniquely straightforward way, listen, man, we're all busy. This is from 7 to 8.30 once a week. Make a plan. <laughs> and he did. He made a plan. In fact, six months later, he called her up and he said, you know what, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you because the past six months have been the richest time of growth in my Christian life. Sitting with God's people, under God's word, just having the word shared in the power of the Spirit was the richest time of growth in his life. What we need to see 
is that the threats to the harvest are real. They are real. Satan, suffering, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, they all conspire with our own sinful natures to make the word unfruitful in our lives. If that's the fruitless word, well, what about the fruitful word? How do we, how do we guard against all this? How do we achieve a successful harvest? What's the secret to a successful harvest? Well, the first thing we have to see, and we must never depart from this truth, is that unless God is at work, there is no harvest. Unless the word is shared in the power of the Spirit, it will remain fruitless. Unless it rains the crop will fail. If you have any doubts, just look with me. Earlier on in our chapter, Matthew 13, verse 11, it says this. To you it has been given, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. So any capacity to receive the word is a gift from God, and any further insight into the word is a gift from God. Any understanding, any hearing is a gift from God. It's grace upon grace. Matthew 13 verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Do you see the personal responsibility there? They have closed their own eyes. But, verse 16, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. It takes divine blessing to open our eyes and unstop our ears. If the Spirit of God is not at work, we are blind and deaf to the Word of God. And then, when we read this parable, we won't be blessed. We'll just be confirmed in our sin. We'll be deepened in our opposition to God, and that's actually what we deserve. But if we read it, and it speaks to us, and it warns us, and it challenges us, encourages us, so that we respond to the word of God with faith and obedience. Well, then that is pure grace. It's pure grace. It's an act of God's spirit. It's not you pulling up your socks. What does this mean? It means we have to approach God's word in a state of total dependence. We come to him with empty hands. You don't master God's word. It masters you. A state of humble, prayerful, expectant dependence, that's fertile soil. Humble, prayerful, expectant dependence. When the word of God lands in that sort of soil, that's when we can hope for a harvest. 30, 60, 100 fold. There are no limits with God. There's no limit to what he can do with us if we come to him in weakness. If we come to him as we are, as paupers in utter spiritual poverty. There's no limit to what he can do with us. How do we judge the quality of the soil? How do we, how do we assess the nature of the harvest? Well, we judge, we judge the soil by the harvest. We judge the quality of the soil by the quantity and the quality of the fruit. We judge the soil by the harvest. First, the quantity. 
What evidence is there that the Spirit is moving in a person's life? What evidence? Well, for one, they want to share the word with others. I mean, that's just the nature of fruit, isn't it? Fruit is full of seeds. This is pre-GM foods. All fruit had seeds in it. It's the way God designed it. Another way of putting this is that a genuine disciple will want to make other disciples. It'll just be part of their makeup. A genuine disciple will also know that the power to make disciples is not in me. The power is in God's word, and the power resides with God's spirit. But the zeal will be there. To be used of God, the zeal will be there. Harriet Tubman was an African-American slave. Uh, she, she fled from the southern states. She managed to walk 750 kilometers through the boggy marshlands to the northern states where she was a free citizen. And then when she got there, she turned around. She walked the 750 k's back. She did that 13 times over the next 10 years to go and rescue other slaves. You see, she couldn't be happy with freedom while others were still in slavery. In her words, it's so simple but so powerful, I was free. They should be free. On the day of Ghana's independence in 1957, 1957, Kwame Nkrumah stood before the assembled masses there and he said, he said this, Our Independence Day is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. Do you see? I was free. I am free. They need to be free. And that's how it is for the disciple of Jesus. I'm free. They should be free. We can't fully enjoy our freedom while others are not free. And the passage to freedom, the road to freedom, is God's word in the power of God's spirit. An encounter with the Lord Jesus who sets us free. The evidence of fruit is more fruit. That's quantity. What about quality? What is the fruit of God's word look and smell and taste like? Well, to borrow from another disciple of Jesus who wrote about fruit, he wrote this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You want to know what the word of God looks like in a good harvest? You want to know when the word of God has found good soil? You want to know if God's grace in the life and death of Jesus is changing a life? First, you will see the fruit multiplying around that person. And second, the fruit you see will be of the richest kind. You will see an abundant sharing of the word with others and an abundant working of the word in the life of this particular individual. That leads us to our last question. What can we as disciples do to be fruitful? Well, let's keep with the farming metaphor. We plow and sow. 
then we watch, and then we pray. We plow and sow, we watch, and we pray. We plow and sow, we get the soil ready to receive the seed. We put ourselves in every possible position to hear Jesus speak to us through his word. We will rise early to read our Bibles and pray. We will get to a life group on a Tuesday night if it's the very last thing on this earth we want to do. We will sign up for Explore. We'll be regular at church. We want to get as much gospel as we possibly can. And then when we, when we look over at the farm next door and we see our neighbor struggling to plow his field, well, what does the farmer do? He gets over there and he lends a hand, puts his, puts his shoulder to the plow, gets, gets in behind his neighbor, helps him plow his own field. So wherever we're going, we invite this person along. Come, I'm going to Foundations this evening. Why don't you come along with me? Hey, man, I signed up for Explore. Have you signed up for Explore? Let's do it together. Sow as much seed into their lives as we possibly can. Meet with them midweek. Read the Bible and pray. Take every possible opportunity to receive the word ourselves and to help others do the same. Be sowing into their lives. We plow and we sow. Then we watch. We watch very carefully for any threat, any risk to the harvest. We act on the word as soon as we can, in the moment, before there's any chance of it being snatched away. Wherever possible, we want to keep it from being snatched away. We act in the moment. We deepen our root structure through every small, seemingly insignificant act of trust and obedience. Because we're doing this, this small, petty, insignificant thing, it may seem, but we're doing that so when the real heat comes, our roots sustain us. Our roots in Christ are deep enough to sustain us. We're constantly on the lookout for those subtle compromises that just shift the word over slightly to make room for the world. We reject them. We're watching for them, and when they come, when we see that temptation walking down the road towards us, we reject it. We fight against those compromises with everything we have because we know in the war against weeds, that war is won one inch at a time. We plow and we sow. We watch for threats to the harvest, and then like any sensible farmer, we get on our knees and we pray for rain. What farmer doesn't do that? We get on our knees and we pray for rain. Fruit is the work of the Spirit. It's His gift to give. It's He who will make us into true disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we ask Him to. Now I'm going to do that now, so won't you pray with me? Spirit of God, please will you take the word of God and plant it deep within us so that we might live for the Father through the Son and be fruitful. We want to follow Jesus. We want to change. Help us to receive this gift of new life that King Jesus is offering. Make us into true disciples for our eternal good and supremely for his eternal glory. 
Amen.